Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello and um, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be part of this festival and uh, very grateful to be invited to speak. I must say, however, that uh, when I looked at the programme and saw the stellar lineup. Um, Rowan, Gwyneth, Tony, Helen, Barry, Philip and others, I felt, I think, as Pontius Pilate must feel about the creed. Uh, Delighted to get a mention, uh, just a little unsure as to the role I'm actually playing here. Uh, But I do always take comfort um, in those uh, words of Quentin Crisp that if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. So there I was staring at the lineup and the programme, and I saw that we will be hearing about RS's humour and thinking about his treatment of love. And there in the centre of the page was the theme I'd chosen, lament. It's two long syllables bidding us take some time over it, perhaps. Sitting there, looking a little bit out of place, lonely, forlorn, in all the exciting events of the afternoon perhaps then embodying what it is speaking of, disorientation and finding a language for it before it falls prey to cover-up or cheap optimism or cheerful dishonesty. Lament. I wonder what you felt when you saw it there. A waste of precious time or an opportunity to talk about things that aren't easily aired? Um, Or maybe you just thought, oh dear, Oakley's going to be talking about doubt again. But whatever else that word's doing here, I hope it's doing one thing right from the start. I hope it's a reminder that we mustn't ever make honest complexity into something dishonestly simple. And this seems important as we slowly emerge from such an extraordinary time of pandemic. Clinging to everything, it seems, are some pretty deep and some often dark feelings. Some of them have taken gasps of air and you're acquainted with them. Others have been so firmly pushed down, out of sight, that we hardly know about them until they remind us, of course, that they are there in some unpredictable ways. The way you speak to your partner sometimes, um, when the result is the last thing you wanted to do, or the sharpness of your reactions to some our loudest moments being internal, the dullness of your response to others, the lack of new thinking at the laptop, the demise of motivation, heaviness, silence you can descend to in company or in prayer, or the anxiety before the meeting, or those never-ending book reading or pillow wrestling 3AMs. Forgive me if this isn't you. I suspect, however, though that uh, some of this has been all of us at some point over this pandemic. And I wonder if you just permit me to be very personal for a few moments, and I hope there's a reason for it. Last month was really difficult for me. I was brought up by my grandmother uh, in Shrewsbury, who is now 99. She's managed to live her in her own home, 
uh, and my auntie and uncle and I have taken turns on a rotor to be with her to cook and clean and help her to the loo and so on. I guess many of you have been in a similar place. All through her life, she's always said to me, never put me in a home. And uh, it just became obvious to us as a family that we were now beyond our capabilities and we had to be open with her and uh, tell her that uh, she needs more than we can give and should be better looked after in a, a nursing assisted home. She's a war generation woman, so she reflected head on and accepted it. And although I could see behind her eyes that she was a bit worried and feeling a bit out of control of her life, uh, she never complained and she never made our lives difficult about it. So last month, I managed to help her into my car. I drove 20 minutes to introduce her to her new home, her room, a bit soullessly hotel-like. And as we drove away from her house to get there, uh, we both knew, I think, that she probably wouldn't ever see it again. I kept resolute through the day. I fussed around a lot to make sure she was okay and the staff were friendly and attentive, checked that her FaceTime worked, that her clothes were put away and that she knew how to use the TV remote. And then it was time for me to go. And she was sleepy after a hectic day. She looked a bit frail and vulnerable and I kissed her goodbye and she just said, I love you. Well, it took about five hours for my tears to come later that day, and boy, did they come. I thought I'd done the right thing, but I felt so guilty. Uh, there seemed to be no alternative and no going back. I was in her empty house. The presence of it seemed to have gone, and I could only see in my mind that aloneness and precariously weak body telling me that she loved me. To call my tears that night a lament sounds a bit over the top, and I'm hopefully not being too dramatic here, but that is what they were. A lament is the language for disorientation, and in my case that night, it was a body language. A lament, say the dictionaries, is the passionate expression of sorrow, grief, regret, maybe complaint, at how life is that causes such hurt. But the themes of last month are becoming clearer to me. A relocation that causes dislocation. The sense of an ending with no immediate sense of what's beginning. An inevitability that cuts the heart. A sense of things taken for granted, now fragile and of not being prepared for the later loss that will come. It all feels hugely significant and yet beyond me. I know it's important moment, but although going through it, I don't feel I'm experiencing it. I can't experience the experience somehow. I'm just able to look at it and after a deep breath, shape it into a talk for some R.S. Thomas lovers who I think will understand. The Comparison with all of us might be clear. In an increasingly precarious church, nation, world, so affected by disease, isolation, death, bereavement, of livelihoods collapsing and blame being sought, 
Things likewise seem dislocated, lost even, and we can't quite see where it's leading, what our home life, as either church or citizen, so to speak, will look like, what is expected of us in this time of endless provisionality. And in all this, how will we stay in touch with ourselves, with public spaces and with God? We've seen beauty, of course, as well, and sacrifice. And it seems there are some good changes taking place, though it's too soon to know for sure. All these themes are lodged deep in the heart and psyche at the moment. We are people who have become very acquainted with what Thomas Hardy referred to as the wonder and the wormwood of the whole. The global suffering and havoc alongside the surprise, even relief, of summoning new ways of seeing and being. And it's that dismantling of so many things at the moment that are in view, from the planet and our environment to liberal democracy, from an agreed understanding of truth and accuracy to values based on universal and equal human dignity. Ordinary life as we knew it has been dismantled. Covid dismantled even my heart muscles for a while. It then killed my partner's father and another two million people around the world. How many bereaved parents, partners and children that leaves is unknown. But even the way they were able to mourn and bury their loved ones was dismantled. Life's losses in these times of ours are lamentable. What I'm saying, I think, is that we can feel that things are dismantling and I can't quite see if I have any place in what is emerging because I can't see where it's going. And if a person of faith, where God is at work in all this or where the world is doing its worst, are things falling apart or are they just painfully falling into place? Whichever. It feels like spiritual exile some days. And lament is one song that exile always sings. On Easter Day, I heard that question in the Gospel, why are you weeping? And I thought, well, where should we begin? But all this slightly solemn introduction I've just given you of mine is to say this, that that question, why are you weeping, is such a profoundly important one because it self-scrutinizes us seriously, revealing us to ourselves. And it's only on the basis of that question that any resurrection is founded and lived. So enter R.S. Thomas. The title of this talk is taken from a less known poem of his, The Lonely Farmer. Poor hill farmer, astray in the grass. There came a movement, and he looked up, but all that he saw was the wind pass. There was a sound of voice on the air, but where, where? It was only the glib stream talking softly to itself. And once, when he was walking along a lane in spring, he was deceived by a shrill whistle coming through the leaves. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, four swift notes. He turned, 
and it was nothing, only a thrush in the thorn bushes, easing its throat. He swore at himself for paying heed. The poor hill farmer, so often again, stopping, staring, listening, in vain, his ear betrayed by the heart's need. This has been a time when lonely has become for many of us an unexpected adjective for ourselves. We all have had to stop and stare, a time when it has felt that there is some voice on the air, though difficult to decipher. And it's a time when many of us have been betrayed, been exposed by our heart's need, though unsure as to how to begin to meet the need. Now, therapists will remind us that things hurt and cause suffering when there is a discrepancy, when there's a gap between our worldview, the way we've come to understand things on the one hand, and on the other hand, the changes, the events, the losses, the hurts that don't make sense in that worldview of ours. So one morning, life seems on track, and then you get that phone call and everything shatters. The discrepancy between the world as you thought you knew it and what is now happening is part of the suffering. And I either have to adjust my view of the event or adjust my beliefs about the world to accommodate the new information and feelings. This is the meaning-making process, a reappraising of our take on things, a way to get beyond what we thought we were good at and what we thought we had wrapped up. And any post-traumatic growth needs this meaning-making as a crucial coping mechanism in times of suffering. And so the therapist and the theologian might agree that here at importantly comes into view. Lament is a spiritual discipline. Biblically, especially in about a third of the Psalms, lament is a formal structured expression of sorrow, mourning, complaint. So think of Psalm 13. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? We find in those Psalms complaints about um, bodies not working too well, disease, disappointment, depression, dangerous liars out there, bad people doing better than good. And sometimes God is the cause of lament very directly. He's unresponsive or acting oddly. Jesus knew and prayed these psalms of lament and even recites two on the cross to a God who seems to have deserted him and yet into whose hands he commends himself. Hebrews tells us that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And our rather sanitised liturgies don't always allow us to lament in quite this way. A recent study of contemporary hymnals concluded that only about 4% of hymns reflect the kind of lament that is modelled in the Psalms. The serious issue there is that it renders the sufferer voiceless or limits the sufferer into saying things they don't really want to. What we need in the church, you might say, 
is a little more barefaced integrity. Enter R.S. Thomas, who, of course, often said his favourite books of the Bible were the Psalms and Job, who he wrote, spoke with the eloquence of the bruised heart. The absence. It is this great absence that is like a presence that compels me to address it without hope of a reply. It is a room I enter from which someone has just gone, the vestibule for the arrival of one who has not yet come. I modernise the anachronism of my language, but he is no more here than before. Genes and molecules have no more power to call him up than the incense of the Hebrews at their altars. My equations fail as my words do. What resources have I other than the emptiness without him of my whole being, a vacuum he may not abhor? Many of you will know that the Psalms of Lament tend to have a structure, an address to God, a complaint, a request, a motivation, and then confidence in God restored. Scholars note that the Lament Psalms do their work of helping people to die completely to the old situation, the old possibility, the old hopes, the old lines of defence and pretense, to say as dramatically as possible, that's all over now. Now what? It is, if you like, liminal lamenting. It's a little bit like that wonderful stage direction that Samuel Beckett puts in one of his plays. The door is imperceptibly ajar. In praying through lament, a few things are happening. First, by expressing the feelings and experience of suffering, it begins to restore some sense of order in the chaos. Secondly, it allows that suffering to be expressed interpersonally, bringing it into relationship. Praying lament addresses God. Your hurt is brought into relationship with God. It doesn't just stagnate in you. The covenant with God is respected. It's not made into something false, with one side only saying nice things uh, and therefore not being yourself. Thirdly, it helps us as we struggle for the words to hear ourselves, to excavate what's lying deep behind our mask, the unseen force controlling or paralysing us. But words don't just express or reflect experience, they also shape it. And that great theologian of lament, Walter Brueggemann, reminds us that language does not simply follow reality, but leads reality to become what it is not. The speaker calls forth a new reality, a subversion. So to find the words is more important than we might realise. And it's why we need poets. It means as we give voice, so nothing is off limit. Suffering, confusion, emotional chaos have to be recognised for what they are. The way out of suffering is through it, not around it even if culture is encouraging us to avoid it. And in all this, the importance of lament is this. It's acting as a bridge between your old world and your new, from disorientation to a new orientation. 
It's a holding language, a liminal one, a lament that unbeknown to us leads into a distant but promised land. It's part of the transforming that we must undergo to repair the heart that found itself in a discrepancy. It was only by crying that I was able to return to that care home and begin, and I can sense it is only a beginning, some sort of new reality I have never had before. So enter again R.S. Thomas. R.S., like the psalmist, can make us from time to time view this life as a courtroom where the dominant story of God or of us or what it is to be civilised is cross-examined. Both the core testimony and the cross-examination need each other in order to be true to human experience, questioning, growth, confusion, but also to be faithful to God because faith is practised through honesty. Not even God can work with unreality. Often the most interrogating poems, of course, are those when R.S. is in church, waiting, scrutinising, trying to work out who he is when alone in the empty building and who God is without what he calls the limousine of furnished religion we trap him in. Counter-testimony is part of the journey because if it isn't, we turn into false selves, compromised, cautious, self-censoring conformers, stifling our rage or doubt and several degrees removed from ourselves and God. And of course, A.E. Dyson said that R.S. brought him back to faith because it was the voice of this poet speaking out of dereliction, which called back towards blessing. Here is his waiting. Face to face, ah, no, God, such language falsifies the relation nor side by side, nor near you, nor anywhere in time and space. Say you were when I came, your name vouching for you, ubiquitous in its explanations. The earth bore and they reaped, God, they said, looking in your direction. The wind changed. Over the drowned body, it was you they spat at. Young, I pronounced you. Older, I still do, but seldomer now, leaning far out over an immense depth, letting your name go and waiting, somewhere between faith and doubt, for the echoes of its arrival. R.S. in another place says that you have to imagine a waiting that is not impatient because it is timeless. Waiting, it seems to me, is part of the work of lament, waiting for the old to be transformed into something as yet unknown, a recognition that the more opinions we have, the less we will see, the less flexible we will be for growth. Homo sapiens sapiens. Our name defines a species that wants to know, but a counter-thirst exists in us as well for something beyond knowledge and definition, beyond quick clarity and the thinking that fits tidily 
into a cutlery drawer. And words such as mystery, camouflage, silence, stillness, shadow, distance, opacity, withdrawal, namelessness, erasure, cryptic, enigma, darkness, absence. To the spiritual pilgrim, these all suggest disclosure. Frightening, tormenting, worthy of lament, but still disclosing. Enter again, R.S. Near and far. No one so busy as you are. Where is that seventh day when you rest from your labour? I arise from sleep to find that you have been all night growing. And by day you are abroad, endlessly exploring a circumference by which you are not confined. You have no words, yet vibrate in me with the resonance of an Amen. You are strung with light as with nerves across which thought is drawn to deliver intellectual music. Sometimes you are an impulse upon my walls, at others a modifying of unseen organisms, slowly and delicately as a mutation, but always as far off as you are near, terrifying me as much by your proximity as by your being light years away. R.S. Thomas is a poet of counterpoint, a poet in which sounds of two possible readings meet, where two distinct melodies create the texture. The readings are those of God's absence and presence, silence and resonance, shadow and brightness, wonder and wormwood, peace and turmoil. The texture is that of a faith that may just be sustainable in the 21st century. His poems rub up against each other with that uneasy collision of voices, reciprocating in the turmoil of the reader as they face the pleasant lies and burnt-out words that have eaten far too well into us. Thomas undresses the mind in his simple, sometimes harsh, unsentimental clarity. His is a lament for our times, and therefore a breaking through to some uncharted territories, a laboratory of the spirit. That is why lament, biblically, always leads to praise. So enter R.S. for the last time. Voices. Who to believe? The linnet sings bell-like a tinkling music. It says, life is contained here, is a jewel in a shell casket lying among down. There is another voice, far out in space, whose persuasiveness is the distance from which it speaks. Divided mind, the message is always in two parts. Must it be on a cross, it is made one. To end, it was Ronald Knox who said that when somebody on one occasion had told him to pull himself together, his response was, I'm not sure I have it together. This is where many of us are at the moment. It will mean a belief in silence, 
resisting control to take over of the situation. Inner honesty, scrutiny, not platitudes, not churchy cliches, not bumper sticker theology. It will require lament, that gift of tears that washes the eyes to see a new path. So exit R.S. Thomas now. Many of you will know Gillian Clark's beautiful poem she wrote on the death of R.S. His death on the midnight news, suddenly colder, gold Septembers driven off by something afoot in the southwest approaches. God's breathing in space out there, misting the heave of the seas, dark and empty tonight except for the one frail coracle born out to sea, burning. I can't help but feel that he was on his way over those waves to continue his cross-questioning. I'm sure God is still getting an earful, and some will say, quite right too. His burning and buffeted coracle was a burning light for many of us. That light was given by his counterpoint, his protest, his unease with ease, his dissatisfaction with satisfaction, his liminal laments of love and loss and longing. It made him, as Heaney said, a loner taking on the universe, a Clint Eastwood of the spirit. It made his voice one that mine recognises but is always far behind trying to catch up in its honesty and that unflinching, unsentimental clarity. For those who live with lament, R.S. is a true friend to the soul, and I, for one, will always be grateful, and never more than now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.